You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. All right. I am an evangelical Christian. I don't assume you are. I know many of you are. But I assume that a lot of people here uh, fall across a big swath of perspectives and beliefs, uh, whether it's faith or specifically in regards to sexuality and homosexuality. So, just want to start off by saying this is a safe place. We can ask any kind of questions we want. We're going to have a great open dialogue today. We want to take some of the hot air out of the room, just let it go, (sighs) and understand that this is okay. This is okay to talk about these things publicly And uh, we want to make it a very, very safe place. It's what the church should be, and it's sad to me that it isn't, all right? Amen? So we're going to make this a safe place. New Life Church is going to be a safe place to talk about this, to engage in dialogue, and to learn about each other, to hear personal stories, uh, to go to the scriptures together, to pray together, and to, I think, as we journey together as a community of faith, really try to grasp God's heart for this um, while living out his great and first commandment to love him and love others. So, I want to emphasize that as we open the scriptures today, that is the word of God. So, the word of God is Jesus himself. These are his words. This is a gift he's given us. And as we open this, like let's just start by picturing him walking here among us. He's with us today. The Holy Spirit is with us today. And our Heavenly Father, who in Romans 8 calls us sons and daughters, who's adopted us and who welcomes us and invites us to belong before we ever really understand or can become what it means to become a disciple, we're accepted and we belong. So let's, on that note, open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to hear your heart today. And God, would you help us? Would you help us to wrestle with questions we have, with issues we have, with feelings we have, with beliefs that we have. And God, we bring them all to your feet, and we invite you to lead us and guide us, uh, and we dedicate this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let me just start off with a quote from Carolyn J. Simon, one of the better books I've read in preparing for this topic today. It's called Bringing Sex into Focus. She writes, moral vision applied to sexuality is crucial for sexual insight. Moral vision applied to sexuality is crucial for sexual insight. And so she uses a metaphor of a foropter to bring into view six different lenses or perspectives on sexuality. So who knows what a foropter is? Yeah? What is it? Yes, all right. It's fun to use a word like that that I didn't have a clue what it meant until I just read it because Joe Kirkendall, PhD, Dr. Joe, is so brilliant and genius that he drops those words all the time. I just wanted to, to use one. But so this, so she's got six lenses that she works through. Uh, and these things, you know, when you're getting your eyes checked out, drop another lens and another lens. And they'll get it closer and closer, the light that's reflected through these lenses, to the point where all of a sudden you're seeing 2020. And so what she's trying to do is, is give us these lenses to say, 
Some of them might overlap all the way, some only partially, but we all enter this perspective of sexuality with different lenses. So really, it's a, it's a philosophical book. Although she is a Christian, she is an evangelical, and she does have a covenantal scriptural view of sexuality, she, the book is really a, a much broader. It's a, it's a philosophy of approaches and perspectives towards sexuality. So let me just summarize these real quickly. And, and if, you, if you're a note taker, maybe you can jot these down. If not, just think of these and maybe reflect back and think, what, where, where am I? Do I hold one of these, two of these, three of these? A little bit of all of them. All right, so one is a covenantal lens. Sexual intercourse forges a permanent bond between two people that is intended as a representation of God's covenantal relationship with God's people. Sexual intercourse is life-uniting act that should only occur within marriage. The scriptures, I would say, guide this view. I might even, later on in the book, she describes a few more elements to this, and I, I would even call this a creational covenantal lens. Because so much of the um, biblical support, we would say, for this definition of marriage, a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman, um, that we hear about in evangelical circles, really, it has this creational element, too. Um, So it's very covenantal, a theme of God's covenant with his people throughout the scriptures. Uh, But it's also creational, a view of God created people in a certain way, in a certain order, and that a relationship, a covenantal marriage relationship between a man and a woman is the right ordering, the way God ordered creation, and that outside of that is a wrong ordering. So that's probably what uh, is, is a good name for this covenantal lens. Number two, procreative lens. The goal or purpose of human sexuality is reproduction. Non-reproductive uses of sexuality are misuses of sexuality because they divide the reproductive purposes of sexuality from its unifying function. Okay? So, totally practical. Let's make babies. That's it. That's what sex is for. Uh, Now, we know right off the bat you're probably thinking 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, Paul, he talks about not withholding from one another and, and, you know, like in, in a context of not ever mentioning kids or procreative use. So, so there's, there's some disagreements there. You might say, if you only held to that view. But what if you combined the procreative and the covenantal? A lot of people in here might hold those two views together. Number three, romantic lens. Sexual intercourse is the appropriate expression of a particular sort of deep emotional attachment. Romantic love, which with one's beloved. Loveless sex is inappropriate. People should be sexually faithful as long as love lasts. So that is, I don't know, maybe the most popular, I would think, one of the most popular, for sure, views in our culture today. Plain sex lens. Sexual desire is an acute bodily desire for physical contact with the body of another. Sex is an intensely pleasurable physical activity. Sex should be based on mutual consent leading to mutual sexual satisfaction so that no one gets hurt. Number five, the power lens. Sexuality is a potent instrument for controlling others. Sexual desire is the desire to possess another, while wanting to avoid being objectified by the other. One must be savvy about the potential for sexual exploitation, manipulation, and violence. 
And number six, the expressive lens. Sex is a source of personal empowerment that is central to human flourishing. Sexual restraint is unnatural, yet sexuality should be deployed without hampering the empowerment of others. So very, very diverse kind of set of lenses that we experience at culture at large. There's probably others, but I think she does a great job of capturing some of the most dominant uh, perspectives on sexuality in our culture today. Uh, so one more quote from her, and this is really, I think, to capture the posture that we would like to take at New Life, is that from the perspective of many people, both, both Christian and non-believer, Christians look not just judgmental, but also like people giving verbal assent to life-denying rules that no human being can live without, live by without distortion and pain. If Christians want to bear witness to the livability of covenant sexuality, we need to do so with our lives and not our diatribes. Right? So if we can't live it out, if we can't live a life of integrity, then we have no reason to be speaking in the first place. And sadly, we often do. So hopefully we'll create some space where we can dialogue more. This can be the beginning of a conversation that, uh, where we really begin to live this out. We begin to live out what we believe about our sexuality and not just talk about it. Okay, so this illustration some people may maybe think is comic. I think it's rather tragic that uh, the people that are most vocal about divorce and remarriage today, Christian evangelicals, a lot of us, I would say I'm a Christian evangelical, are those people who have the highest divorce rates. Highest divorce rates. And they're the most vocal specifically about gay marriage right now. Wanting it not to become legal. And so it really begs the question for me, what is this about? If we have the highest rates of divorce and remarriage, and we have the loudest voices against homosexual marriage, it probably beckons us back to listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 7, uh, when he challenges us to first take the log out of our own eye, instead of paying attention to the speck in somebody else's eye. So we've got a major uh, conflict internally within the church right now. Um, It's really, I think, a lack of integrity. I think it's a lack of moral focus and vision. It's a lack of a lot of things. But we are ultimately, we know we're all broken. We know there's so many sins uh, that we could pick and choose. And so Jesus tries repeatedly throughout the New Testament to help us not focus on picking and choosing, but surrendering our lives to him and following him. That the, the, the act of following Jesus and uniting in relationship is the core uh, of what we're to do as Christians. And so uh, we have a lot of, I think, repenting to do, and we have a lot of repair work to do with people because we've had some loud voices to speak against uh, gay marriage, to speak against homosexuality in general in the broadest senses, uh, and we haven't done a great job of living out the things we're preaching ourselves. So on that note, uh, let's, let's talk about maybe a little bit of an experiment, I think, um, just, to, just to help us focus for a moment on our own sin. So, because uh, for whatever reason, I mean, is gre- to, to get ordained into a lot of evangelical churches 
is there any statement in, your, in, in the church polity or constitution or government that states that you can't be greedy? Not in most. Not that I know of. Is there any that states that you can't be selfish? No. Is there any that states that you can't uh, neglect the poor? But all of these things are, are talked about literally thousands of times more in Scripture than homosexuality. And yet, in our church governments, sometimes we're making it very clear you can't be homosexual, but we don't mention any of these other things. So why do we do that? Well, because the majority of the population does not experience same-sex attraction. And when, and when, first of all, we fear things we don't know, and second of all, when we don't live with that perspective, it's hard for us to empathize or relate or even understand things we're not experiencing, right? So it's easy for us to condemn it without looking at our own sin. Uh, for example, go to Briargate, shops at Briargate. Here's a little, a little experiment any of us could do. And just, if you wanted to do it this afternoon, great. Just walk from shop to shop to shop and, and say, talk to the employees and say, okay, how do the Christians, like Evangel, you know, you hear small talk in the Apple Store or in Panera or in Starbucks. When you hear these conversations, how do you perceive Christians and how do you perceive non-Christians? And it's really interesting because I've done this and the more common response is that Christians come in here entitled, so they expect a discount or to get something fast or they don't tip big or whatever it is. And it's a very different picture from, from non-believers. So I think that one of the biggest sins that we struggle with is a sin, a sin of greed. And a, and a lot of the way that exposes itself is through this, this uh, way of living entitled. You just, we just feel entitled to things. Um, and I think that that's a sin, the sin of greed, that needs to be addressed in the church. And, and a lot more time needs to be spent on it. Now, we won't go there today because this is specific, specifically a series on sexuality. But I wanted to put that in the bigger picture context uh, of the importance of some of these other topics. Now, here, here's also, um, I would say, just a little story to highlight uh, how hard it is um, maybe for us to understand how wrong we can be sometimes in our judgments and even how hurtful and violent our language can become. So I taught at the Air Force Academy in 2006 and 7 in the, in the management department. So I was in business class and repeatedly throughout the year, um, in 2006, it was, I just kept hearing people, it, you, whatever the negative connotation is in a sentence, Oh, that's silly, that's stupid, that's ridiculous, that's wrong, that's awkward. You just take that negative word out and replace it with gay, and that's what I heard almost on a daily basis. So students just use this to refer to anything negative. It's common culturally, but it's especially common in the military. And so I tried all kinds of things. Opening up this dialogue in class to get people to stop. Uh, I tried disciplinary actions. Didn't work. So finally, I'm, pro- I'm pro- probably halfway through the semester, and I was praying before class, and I thought, man, I just need to do something more creative. So, of course, that class that day, somebody calls something gay in a very negative sense, and I respond by saying, look, 
I'm in my 30s. I've never been married. I'm not dating anyone. I don't know what you're trying to do by saying everything negative is gay, but you need to stop. And then I con- continued off in my lecture from there. And, and I think today, it's, you know, I, I also never followed up with it and addressed it. And, this, and if you remember, 2006 and 7, this is still when don't ask, don't tell was a policy in the military. So if you did tell, I could go under investigation at that point for implying that I was gay. So it's, it's incredible what, what we do when we create a culture that keeps a topic so subversive and unapproachable that people feel like they have no grounds to talk about it. Now, even though Don't Ask, Don't Tell was trying to take our culture in a better direction to help people talk, what it actually did was suppress anyone being able to talk about it. Everyone went underground, and people became even more fearful. So thankfully, that is gone, and people can openly talk about what their position is today. Because I would rather have people be in dialogue and engage about their personal identity, what they're feeling their personal identity is, what they know their personal identity is, than having to avoid it and never even having the chance to talk about it in a, in a safe place like this. And that's how, for decades, most people in the military felt. All right. So, let's go to some opening stories. People in this room might be across the whole spectrum where they're at with their own um, sexual preference, um, their feelings, their desires. Uh, I've got engaged a lot in the past two months with several of my friends. Um, some are openly gay. Some are gay or lesbian in the closet. Some uh, say that they, God has healed them and that they are no longer gay, but they're heterosexual. Some say that there's not such a thing as gay at all, that this is a construct that's a more modern, recent thing in history, and that, yes, they struggled with sinful temptation like anyone else does, but there's no real thing called being gay or lesbian. Uh, And some people, those are all my Christian friends, and there's some other gay friends that, well, they would, they're kind of across the spectrum too, but mostly are pretty open at this point. And then I even have extended family, some who are openly gay and some who are not. So hopefully I'm coming today with a lot of um, uh, personal experience in very trusted conversations and dialogue that we can pull from together. So feel free to, to ask questions at the end. We can talk through some of those. Um, but the context for today also, besides kind of laying out where we might fall on the spectrum here, um, this is an American kind of dialogue right now. It is a greater dialogue in the world, but for the most part, especially all the controversy surrounding it, is primarily here. So if we look at the church at large, which we're a part of, Christians around the world, and we look at the Orthodox or Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox or Coptic church, uh, some of the oldest churches in the world, where we look at churches in, this, in the majority world, the southern hemisphere, that are mostly Pentecostal now. This isn't even a topic of dialogue or debate. It's homosexuality is not accepted. 
So this is more, as we, I'm assuming that everyone here today, uh, as we consider this topic, you're, you're, t- you're having a more American lens you're looking through, wondering why this is such a hot topic or controversial issue here when it isn't perhaps in the rest of the world. Uh, so with that, we will go to the scriptures. Oh, yeah, that, and that will really, that kind of helps us understand why this whole world vision debacle uh, in the last couple months happened. Um, because I think, honestly, they were more influenced by the church in America than they were by the church at large and by the majority church around the world. So they made a decision based on what they think would be best to interact with the church in America, and they got such a harsh backlash because actually most of their work is around the world. So you had this incredible conflict right away to the point where they had to back out of their earlier decision. Okay, so let's go to scriptures. If you would like, we're going to cover these quickly. Uh, Open up your Bible to Genesis 19. There are three Old Testament scriptures and three New Testament scriptures that we can talk about today that specifically address homosexual practice. So we know, probably a lot of us know, the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And in Genesis 19, 1-13, we read about this violent inhospitality and violent male rape. There's several early allusions in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, to confirm this, that this, these were, this was absolutely wrong. And in fact, in many other places in Scripture, Sodom is referred to to describe the sin of Sodom as something that's very bad. So if we're engaging in some kind of practice that is biblically, morally wrong today, It'll often be compared to the sin of Sodom. But people use this incorrectly all the time to speak against gay marriage or to speak against uh, loving covenantal gay marriage or to speak against even loving homosexual union and homosexual acts. When this specifically is speaking against violent inhospitality and violent gang rape, of men, right? So, what does, Joe, what does Joe say we do with the scriptures when they're silent on something? Who does the crickets in here? That's it. I mean, what can you say? If the scriptures aren't going to speak to it, why are we going to use this incorrectly to, to, to make an argument against gay marriage? We're not. We better hear crickets at that point because this, this scripture is specifically not speaking against that. All right. Leviticus 18.22 is the next scripture. Now this is more about the moral and cultic or ritual law. So the question here is really, in this verse, from homosexual acts, is there inevitable impurity or is it more about avoidable actions? Is this just simply speaking about Moral, or sorry, cultic or ritual law, things that passed away? Or is this avoidable actions, a moral law? And this is hotly debated today. And there's both interpretations, and they abound. And they're 
by brilliant scholars on both sides. Some would say that it is both moral and ritual or cultic law. Others would say it's just a ritual law that passed away. I would say that it's probably, given the context of moral prohibitions such as adultery and bestiality, right around it, it's probably both. But it's debatable and it's arguable. So we aren't quite sure. But because of of the things it's mentioned, the practices it's mentioned along with, in verse 20 and verse 23, most likely it is speaking about avoidable actions. All right, so that's Leviticus 18, 22. Now let's look at just a couple chapters later, Leviticus 20, chapter, uh, verse 13. Now this is the same, uh, very similar to Leviticus 18, but it adds a punishment by death for homosexual practice. Um, this is also part of the holiness code. Um, I don't know if Joe's ever talked about JEDP, but the different sources of of scripture, especially uh, in the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible. But this, this source uh, are the authors that gave us the creation story. So given in context of the creation story, this also um, harkens back to the definition I gave at the beginning of this lens that's covenantal creational or creational covenantal. Um, that these things are not in line with God's created order. Okay, so taken by themselves, let's say we look at the Old Testament alone. Those last two, for sure, Genesis is only speaking against gang rape and violent hospitality. These Leviticus verses have some questionable debate on both sides. Are they just part of the purity or holiness code, or are they also moral commands? So it's really tough to come away with some conclusive biblical position. So, all right, let's look to the New Testament. There's three verses we'll go to, three sections of Scripture. The first is Romans 1, 18 through 32. And this is the one that's most commonly used as people discuss this today. Now, Romans, the whole book of Romans is in the context of the creation and the creator and the created. Some of the most common passages we hear about are how creation is groaning and waiting for the redemption of itself, of everything. So, so this theme, this overarching theme in Romans of God's faithfulness to, in the end, redeem all of the cosmos is, is this incredibly important biblical arc, too. And, and so in this, in the opening chapter of Romans, what Paul is doing is he's really describing not individuals, as we, we think a lot of times we'll just apply the scriptures to us as an individual today. But what he's doing is not only applying it to the community of faith that follows God, but this long arc of history, saying here is what has happened in the big picture from creation to the fall and the marring of our identity and all of creation to the redemption of all things, the whole cosmos. And in this opening... In verse 24, there's this word, akatharsion, or impurity, which is used, he uses again in 1 Thessalonians for sexual sin. Then in verse 27, there's a phrase, for their error, or some translations, for going astray. 
that describe specific blameworthy actions we're responsible for we can avoid. Uh, then, it's, he says it's plain to you, verses 1, 19, and 20. And then you exchanged. So, so God made the right order of things plain to us. But then we exchanged this for our own desires, our own thoughts. Therefore, God gave you over. And he repeats this three times. So verses 24, 26, and 28. That God gave us over because of our choices, because of our previous actions, because of our sin. So, what he's specifically describing then, in verses 26 through 28, is that these homosexual acts, men with men, women with women, are not something that is inevitable, is not something that we can not choose, it just has to be, which is the common rhetoric today. But what it's actually saying is that it's, it's in the bigger picture of the fall amongst all kinds of other things. Paul is using just a few specific examples to capture their hearts and minds to say that those represent all of sin, all of the fallenness of creation. And so he could have put any sin in there, but he chose homosexual acts between man and woman. And he's saying those specifically are a result of the sinfulness of creation, the fallenness of creation, Right? So, do we choose it? Yes. Is it also a result of the fall? Yes. Is it avoidable? Well, we know that none of us are without sin. Right? And scriptures clearly teach that. So, is it avoidable? Well, in one sense, no. Because none of us are without sin. At the same time, Paul goes on in the next chapter to describe how all of us are redeemed through Jesus Christ. How the beginning of the redemption of all things happens beginning with Jesus Christ and ending with Jesus Christ and continuing right now in our lives with Jesus Christ. And so the main message here is not against homosexuality as such. It's against all sin on the earth. All sin. Does Paul include homosexual acts in that? Yes, he does. And that's pretty clear. So a lot of people, what they'll do is interpret this passage incorrectly. And you can find any kind of interpretation on this passage. I guarantee it. You just Google it. You go down to the bookstore downtown, grab anything on sexuality. You will find it. But if you look at biblical scholars um, that are evangelical, you'll find a pretty consistent interpretation and exegesis of this passage that specific homosexual acts are sin. All right. The next two, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and 1 Timothy 1, 10. So these words, male prostitutes and sodomites, is how the NRSV puts it. It's incredibly difficult to understand what Paul was talking about in these passages. Now, the way that we come to this conclusion is because the two, two words are used together. So, the first word, what's usually translated as male prostitutes, means possibly the willing passive partner. It actually has more of a connotation of being soft. And most often this was used as a word to denote 
both women in their passive role in sex, receiving sex from the man, but it was also used to denote male prostitutes who were the softer one receiving sex or being the receiver of the act of sex. Now, put in combination with the second word, which is translated most often sodomites, this word was sometimes used for those who engage in sexual penetration of other men or sexual exploitation of other men. So, if you're using them alone, the first word, soft, could mean a lot of different things. It could be used in a lot of different contexts. But together, because of this context, it probably means male prostitutes and sodomites. Now, men engaging in such activity were just as likely to also engage in sex with women. Therefore, translating this, the term homosexuals, like we use it today, oftentimes as Christian gay men or Christian lesbian women would use it, is not appropriate here. Because what they're talking about is a consensual, covenantal, loving relationship. So, again, crickets. It's not speaking to that. And that's the same thing that we know from 1 Timothy 1.10. Uh, it's using the same word for sodomites from 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. So, before Paul wrote it in these verses, we don't have any other examples of it. This is the first time. And so, we know Paul probably didn't coin the term. It's probably in use, but maybe he did. But literally, we don't have any other examples of it before this case. Okay? So, in the Bible, sin means missing the mark. And with these definitions, especially from Romans 1, but also looking at them in context of the whole, taking all of those six passages together, I think we can pretty clearly understand that homosexual acts are missing the mark of God's ordered creation, covenantal perspective or lens. Now, Paul puts that in terms of, uses this as an example of sin to show that all sin has affected all people and that Jesus' redemption, his life, death, and resurrection on the cross is enough to cover that all. So this is an amazing perspective, yet we've chosen to zero in on this. So I want to show where a lot of, maybe we can talk a little bit now about where church approaches to homosexuality to homosexuality have gone awry. A lot of them. All right, so number one, incorrectly interpreting the scriptures. One way is making homosexuality worse than other sin. Westboro Baptist is the most obvious example. Uh, I see some of you even laughing at that. It's so silly and ridiculous. It's really just a tragedy um, how they've responded to homosexuality. Um, However, many Christians besides them, maybe even some of us here today, make homosexuality into the deal-breaker sin. They make it into the sin that is unpardonable, unforgivable, uh, and, and it's hard. You know, we have to do our work of examining our own hearts and minds if we've been in that place. Sometimes we get that perspective generationally. So it's a cultural thing that's been passed down from our parents, and we think, and we just continue to practice it because that's what they did. Um, They made fun of homosexuals. I know I had to have that conversation a lot with my students at the Air Force Academy. And it's just plain wrong. Uh, Again, going back to Matthew 7, really, anyone who's without sin gets to throw the stone. But none of us are without sin. So how can we make any other sin worse than our own? We can't. Okay. 
So this is interesting too. This is one of the best scholarly books on homosexuality. It, descri- it describes really all of sexuality in the Old and New Testaments. It's by William Loder, called The New Testament on Sexuality. But even here, we're seeing this great respected scholar with this book that is part of our reading material at Fuller Theological Seminary. And again, this seems to be making sin, the sin of homosexuality out to be worse than other sin. I'll read this quote. Those who denied God's reality had perverted minds and engaged in perverted acts. They worshipped idols. As punishment, God gave them over to perverted minds with perverted passions and desires, whose intensity they followed by engaging in perverted acts. Females with females, males with males, and for both their mindset and their actions, they stand condemned. Paul does not differentiate between people of different sexual orientation, either to exempt homosexuals or to make sure both are condemned. He may have known that some made such a differentiation, but we should not have believed it. Nor does he focus only on pederastic relations. Without differentiation, he condemns all with such sexual attitudes and desires and all acts which give expression to them. He does so within the context of deliberately highlighting what he assumes his hearers will agree is outrageous sin. Now, I think that's going too far. And when we use subtle words like this, that this was the outrageous sin, then what we do is we we give a message to our culture that it's okay to say that this sin is worse than another. Sin is sin. It's missing the mark. We all engage in it daily. So we have to be really careful with our words. All right. So what's another incorrect way to interpret the scriptures? Well, it's making homosexuality better than other sin. Because I've heard this described in podcasts and in teaching recently from Ezekiel 16. The whole chapter describes Jerusalem, and it's using this analogy of Sodom, the sin of Sodom. And the whole chapter to describe the sin of Jerusalem. So God's people in the holy city Jerusalem is comparing the sins of Sodom. And at one point says that the sin of Sodom was the people being arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. And so people misinterpret this and say, well, so what actually happened back in Sodom and Gomorrah was that people were being inhospitable only and they were neglecting the needy. But that's not what it's saying. There's a whole list throughout the whole chapter 16 of Ezekiel describing the different sins of Jerusalem. This is one of them that they compare to the sin of Sodom. So this shouldn't be instead of what is described in Genesis. This should be in addition to or add light to what was going on in Sodom at the time. Okay, so what about proof texting? And I think that a lot of us do this as well. This is what probably, I think, the most common thing I've heard. Um, This even came up a lot in the recent uh, debates starting in 2008 and 2009 with the Episcopal Church. Um, So they were ordaining Episcopalian bishops for the first time that were gay. And a huge debate ensued. And I just, Krista Tippett interviewed somebody recently that was central to that debate. And she was quoting 
Galatians 5 and Romans 5 saying that so many of the homosexual faithful Christians she knows are exhibiting fruits of the Spirit and therefore are righteous, as in Romans 5, we're all made righteous by Christ, and therefore, who are we to hinder God? Who are we to hinder what God is doing? So, not even addressing any of the scriptures that actually talk about homosexual acts at all, but going to something completely different, showing a great theme throughout scripture, that God is faithful, and that fruits of the Spirit are produced with a relationship with the Lord, uh, and an intimacy with the Holy Spirit, but that it really, it really was just missing the mark in terms of looking at Scripture at the whole. So we'll hear a lot of different arguments like that. You could, I'm sure you've heard them. Okay, then there's a cultural approach. So some people compare a blessed and right-ordered straight marriage to a cursed and queer gay or lesbian marriage to vilify gay marriage. Others compare the horrific statistics of abuse, divorce, and dysfunction within straight marriages in order to vilify straight marriage. Both of these approaches are incorrect, as all marriages right now are in crisis and need help. So pitting one side against the other, landing in a place in culture where you've been hurt and wounded, and lobbing stones across at the other, that's also a real common cultural approach. Um, But what it does sometimes is it moves us away from the biblical standard of marriage and the biblical ideas of sexuality, and it says, well, and this is a hard temptation for us, right? It's really hard because we say, man, how many people in the last year have become members at New Life that have been divorced and remarried? And the Bible has a lot to say about divorce and remarriage. Um, how many people have we accepted as members that have been really greedy? How many people have we accepted at New Life as members that have been liars and perjurers in their workplace? On and on and on. You got the list. And so we say, you know what? We are so gracious. We don't make a big deal about this. We don't have it in our church polity in our government. So let's just make the standard easier also when we talk about homosexuality. When instead, what we need to do is hold fast to the scriptures, right? Hold fast to the scriptures and believe that we aren't smarter than God. (laughs) That God has given the, the scriptures to us as a treasure and a gift. And no matter how hard and difficult the scriptures are sometimes, that we hold fast to those. And that speaks directly to our marriages. It speaks directly to the way we live our lives in the workplace, speaks directly to our generosity or lack thereof. Okay, then there's the scientific approach. Now, if I actually, I I really struggled with this preparing for today because this seems like a scientific approach. (laughs) I mean, we're going through, right now I should have people across that spectrum that I described to my friends who I'm in fellowship with who have experienced on some level of scale, from a little sexual, same-sex sexual attraction all the way to openly gay believers and non-believers. Uh, because it's really healthy to have that kind of dialogue and understanding. But we often uh, have that opportunity and don't take advantage of it. I think any of us in here, if you look very far at all, you'll find that there's a cousin, a brother, a sister, yourself, whoever that's close in your community that you could talk to to understand where they're coming from. And we often just don't do that. 
right? So instead, what we do is we treat the LGBT community as subjects of discussion and debate, being scrutinized by amassing the right kind of ideas and information and then forming opinions about their lives, even without having firsthand experience. Or do we seek out life lessons, seek to understand first and then to be understood? This is how often the LGBT community feels. Some get to do the speaking. Others simply get spoken about. Some get to do the loving and serving of others, and some get to be the ones chosen to be loved. Right? That's how it feels. And recently I talked to a friend who who grew up his whole life in the church, and he said not once, not once, and he always served in the youth groups, grade school, through high school, through college, still attending, in a small group. Not once in his life has this been opened up for dialogue or discussion. Not once in a safe way. So we need to be real conscious to create safe places to enter this dialogue. And then when we do that, we can finally begin to understand each other and relate. And you know what? In the face of somebody else and their struggles, we will see our own struggles and come out. And we'll actually do a better job of learning how to address the plank in our own eye instead of addressing the speck in somebody else's eye. Okay, so one thing I'll close on, and then we'll have time for a few questions, is the bounded set or centered set approach. So this was proposed about 25 years ago. And real quick analogy. So a bounded set approach would be like if you have a few million acres of land and a whole fence is built around it, and you're either a sheep that's fenced in this land or you're a sheep that's outside of it. And we get to put those sheep inside who adhere to a specific set of beliefs and doctrine or certain ways of life or certain sinlessness. And those who are outside are the ones who don't adhere to those things. That is a bounded set approach. But that, and that is how a lot of churches act. What we want to try to develop here at New Life is a centered set approach where Christ is our center. He's the center of everything. He creates unity for us. And that we're on a direction. So as before, it might be a set of rules, it might be a set of practices, understandings, lifestyles that make us in or out. What we want to do is say everyone belongs. We can only believe and become disciples of Christ as we move towards him. And so everyone's on a journey, in or out. And everyone's on a different season. And God may be addressing some things in your life at one point and other things in another point. And so as we look at each other, the assumption then, because God is the only one who can judge, the only one who has capacity to judge rightly, is that our assumption and our stance should be everyone's in. Everyone belongs. We belong first to then become and then believe. And we work out those, the becoming and the believing practices in community where it's safe to talk about it. So I just shared what we interpret in New Life as a biblical perspective on homosexuality. Does that necessarily mean that it's what you grew up with or what you've experienced in culture or in another church? No. And if we took a bounded set approach, then a lot of people, for a lot of different reasons, would not be accepted in here. But because we take a centered approach, a centered set, and we say Christ is our identity. Everything about our identity is formed around Christ. Everything. That our identity as sons and daughters, 
that that whole book of Romans, leading from Paul's understanding of creation and fall and redemption, and this groaning for redemption, that we're all on that journey, and that we can't judge while we're in between, and that we need to open up in the most loving ways to each other in that journey together, then, then that's what really describes this centered set approach. And that's the only way that we can have our identity in Christ. Because it's so central, our identity in Christ, to Christ's ways. That's why Christianity was called the way. And it's way more about living out a lifestyle of love and service, of self-sacrificial love, than it is about a certain list of rules that keep us in or out. All right, so I hope that I opened up at least the beginning of a dialogue for us. And we want to keep it going. would love to talk more. Um, and, I'd, and I have, because of those relationships too, a lot of experience just in, in things, mistakes I've made and engaging in dialogue, maybe in wrong ways. And sometimes God gave me grace and developed some really good friendships and still have those today. Some of them for over, 20, over 25 years now. So... Um, Let's take just a couple questions, and then we'll close in prayer. So I don't know if it's really a question or not, but I know growing up in the Lutheran church, um, I had parents who were very adamant about profiling homosexuals, and it was really hard to not be angry or bitter towards that lifestyle because when you're raised in a way of saying, this is wrong, it's, it's evil, it's dark, and recently, in the last few years, um, God's been pulling on my heart to really open up and try to understand um, and having conversations with people who are gay or have homosexual tendencies about faith and about God. And he's had those opportunities happen where I used to be terrified to talk to people who are gay about faith in Christ. And one of the coolest things is being able to tell that person um, who struggles with homosexuality that, hey, you know, I struggled with alcoholism. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's something that I battled. That's a, it's a family issue. We have many family members who have struggled with it. And if it's something that you were raised to believe is that that was your culture, um, that's the same place in God's eyes as being an alcoholic or a liar, like you're saying. Um, they can still love Jesus in their hearts. They can still go to heaven. And you're right, we, we don't have a place to judge. My struggle that I have is seeing acts of homosexuality. Like, how do I not feel desecrated when I see a male kiss another male or a female hug another female in, in that way? That's something that I know personally I'm trying to overcome without feeling de- desecrated inside. That's, thank you. That's very vulnerable and honest, and this is the kind of dialogue we need. And I think that it reflects, too, like you would probably say, and that, um, that that revulsion and that response um, is more of a product of your upbringing and the culture in your specific church that you were raised and how this issue was discussed than it is about being right. And... Um, and I think that's right, because if you think of Jesus, for ultimately wanting to be centered in him, he's not reviled by anything. He came into all of the mess of creation, sits with us in our mess, smiles at us, tells us we're his sons and daughters and loves us. He, he, he embraces us 
not just apart from the mess, but he embraces us with all the mess. So, so I think that um, for us to be able to look at somebody, that's a, that's a, a journey that a lot of us are experiencing. And I would, um, here, here's some ways that I, I think uh, we can practice, actually. So, so specifically, what you're doing is retraining um, our emotional response, which is actually stored in a part in our brain because we get trained in that area. And it's hard, you have to retrain it. So we, we can actually practice this by engaging with our friends that, where we might not experience that. Pretend this is your gay Christian friend and say things like, I love you. I accept you. You belong. I'm glad to be here with you. I love you wholeheartedly. Let me embrace you. you know, and, pr- and we can practice those kinds of things. Or, I'm glad you're my friend. Or, I can't give you answers right now for that. We might have talked about that already, but you know what? I can remind you that together we're moving towards Jesus and that I want to embrace him with you and that this is a journey that I love sharing with you. So those kind of things. And I think that if any of us have felt that reviling, just that training, that's sad, that sinful, sad judgment that has been trained into us by so many churches— we first need to repent of it, and then we need to practice a new way. Okay, one more. Oh, is this on? Okay. Um, so in the spirit of wanting to be there for a friend that might not be out of the closet yet, can you give us some parameters of how you might talk to them so that they can be open and we can walk with them through this, just being sensitive? Yep. I think a good, great analogy would be the same exact way that you would do this to a friend with a friend who's heterosexual. So, um, most guys in here statistically struggle with porn. Um, in fact, the majority of guys are probably addicted to it. That's just a stat. The way it is, it's the same in, in the church as it is out of the church. How do you, as a man, approach your other friends who are guys to talk about that? How are you, as a woman, how do you practice approaching your friends that are women uh, to talk about premarital sex? How do you talk about any issue that the scriptures identify as sin. It's the same thing. So, so is this different? Well, we might think it is that we approach people differently with it because of the weight of judgment that has been thrown against people who experience same-sex attraction. So we th- we, we've experienced this weight. I experienced it in different church communities. So we think, man, there's got to be a different way to approach this. But it's the same. It's lo- loving, trusted, honesty. And one thing I would also say is that... Um, you know, have you ever been in a situation where you're with a neighbor or a coworker for years? Like you live next to them for two years, or you work with them for two years, and they never know you're a believer because you were afraid to let yourself be known. Like, it's awkward. I know they're real liberal, and they hate Christian theology. They don't hate Christians, but they hate— and I just, I'm not going to go there. That's awkward. When we don't let people know who we are, it's awkward. It's not like you have to be running around pre- preaching Jesus all day long, especially in the workplace, but we should model it with our lives. And when it's appropriate to come up, it should come up. So I think this is the same thing. If we wait too long because we're worried or we're fearful, we just got to let that hot air out of the room. And we got to ask. And it starts with, I think, asking questions. How are you doing with your sexuality? What kinds of things do you think of? Have you ever had homosexual, same-sex attraction to the thoughts? Those are appropriate questions for friends. 
And especially if this is a person who you say, man, in my life, in their life, am I in that circle of trust? Am I in that inner circle? If you're there, those questions are all open. Those are things that I would, I mean, I want my friends to be asking me those kind of things. All right. I know you're given one more, so we'll do that and then we'll close up because I want to get you guys out of here and then I'll stay after and we can talk more. Um, so how do you deal with the idea of somebody inviting you to their wedding? Okay, so they're getting married to their partner and the idea of not necessarily wanting to come into agreement is that, like, I'm not going to the weddings or, like, what level of, I guess, uh, disagreement, like... Right. Is appropriate and still loving. So, like, if somebody's like, we're getting married, we want you to come. It's like, I love you guys, but, you know, that's, yeah. Yeah. In the New Testament, the leaders in the church in Jerusalem made it a pretty small list of what things uh, believers needed to do. Um, and I think that, so there's a pretty big swath there. Let me, let me put this in different contexts, actually. What might be helpful is um, exegeting some different passages in 1 Corinthians. Um, it seems in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, excuse me, chapters 8 and 10, that in one sense Paul's saying the demonic and idol worship and meat sacrifice to idols is, is um, not to be touched in another sense, and that there's this reality of the demonic. In another sense, he's saying, hey, have freedom. Have what you want. Don't worry about it. And so he creates, he's recognizing that there's this tension that all the people he's pastoring feel between this true and experienced um, angst and spiritual reality and danger even with some of the things that were sacrificed at the temple and how we get involved with those. But then in other senses, if our faith is strong, those things don't have any power over us. But Paul does acknowledge that the power is real. And I think for some of us, depending, it, it's, it's a case-by-case basis. So you might, you might look at your experience personally, and this might be giving you so much angst that you have to work through something else first before being able to attend a wedding ceremony like that. Another person may say, man, that doesn't affect my faith. That's not an issue at all. This is my friend who I love. I'm going to love him no matter what. Now that's different than necessarily performing the wedding ceremony, right? But attending and supporting your friends, I think, I think there's a lot of room in there, and you have to look at that personally and say, um, I need to wrestle this out, is it might be an issue with my faith. Why is this so hard for me? And if it is, maybe you can go back to the scriptures and say, okay, yeah, I don't think necessarily the scriptures are speaking to me not attending this a gay wedding ceremony. So... You know, I think that's another thing where there's crickets, but in some cases it wouldn't be healthy for people to do that. All right. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for opening this dialogue and discussion with us. We thank you for your goodness. God, we pray that more than anything, we would be centered in you, Christ, that we would follow you in your loving ways. God, forgive us where we judged. God, we repent of committing so many sins and still looking at others' sins and calling out the plank, calling out their issues without even addressing the plank in our eyes. And God, we pray 
that you would transform us, God, that you would renew our minds, that you would renew our marriages, our lives, God, that you would renew our emotions, God, that you would teach us how to be good friends, you teach us how to walk in the ways of Jesus, God, that you teach us to not neglect the most important things in our faith, to love you and others, and to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. God, that we would hold on to your kingdom that has come and is coming of righteousness and peace and joy. And God, that we would be able to engage our friends and openly encourage everyone to belong. God, as we walk out and learn how to become disciples of you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.